Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Donald Trump has sent out an open invitation to primary congressman Chip Roy, despite the fact that the filing deadline was in November. We have such a great show today. Congressman and Senate candidate Colin Allred stops by to talk about Greg Abbott's horrifying aggression towards Kate Cox. Then we will talk to Congressman Jim Hines from the great state of Connecticut about Speaker of the House Mike Johnson's incompetent reign over Congress. But first, we have legendary campaign manager and author of The Conspiracy to End America, Five Ways My Old Party is Driving Our Democracy to Autocracy, The Lincoln Project, Stuart Stevens. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Stuart Stevens. Thanks for asking me to the party. <laughs> You're such a talented writer, but also you are so incredibly sharp. All right, that's that's it. That's enough nice stuff I'm going to say to you. <laughs> well, thank you, Molly. Let's talk campaign here because you know what the fuck is going on. What the fuck is going on? Republican primary campaign, is that over? Yes. There is, I think, a question that people will ask, you know, in years to come. Was there a Republican primary? You know, what's fascinating when you look at these numbers, say, go to the real clear politics average. Trump is performing like an incumbent president would perform if he was being or she was being challenged in a primary. He's not operating like a normal candidate in a multi-candidate field. A year ago, he was operating like that. I mean, there was a 
Yahoo News poll, first week of January, that had DeSantis and Trump basically tied. DeSantis is one point behind. He's now somewhere in the 60s, and DeSantis has dropped to 12 and falling. So somewhere along the line, Republican voters decided that Trump was the incumbent and sort of tuned out to the primary. And I don't think there's any question Trump's going to win. Usually there's a bump in the road along the way. But when I look at these state numbers, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, I think it looks like Trump is going to win all three. Do you think that the fundamental problem with these Republican candidates was that they refused to take on Trump because they were scared of him? Or is, is there more? Is it more complicated? I think the fundamental problem for these candidates is that Donald Trump is giving Republican voters the most undistilled version of what they want. Certainly, if you look at DeSantis, he's sort of the margarine to Trump's butter. And why margarine? I mean, they like the butter. Nikki Haley, you know, it's fascinating if you look at these numbers. You could say she's improved her standing. She was at 3% in the the moment poll about five months ago. Now she's at 12%. The problem is, as she goes up in the polls, her favorables ratio to her unfavorables has shifted. She was like 40 points favorable to the good. She's now like 10 points. So what's happening is she's coalescing the non-MAGA element of the primary. She's not seen as a MAGA candidate. And there's a ceiling to that. So I just think it's a case where Trump is giving Republican voters what they want in the most fun, vivid, powerful way. So let's talk about blood and soil. Is that what Republican voters want? I think the Republican Party has become predominantly a white grievance party. And the essence of that is racism. And what Trump has done I think, is not made people more racist. I think he has made it more socially acceptable to be racist. There's a normalization going on here that is extraordinarily troubling and dangerous, as as many, yourself included, have rightly noted. It's just staggering to think about it. So when I was coming up from the Republican Party, the icon was Ronald Reagan, right? So think about this. Ronald Reagan announced in front of the Statue of Liberty His last speech in office was an ode to immigrants. He signed a bill that made everyone in the country before 1983 legal. You can go on YouTube if you want your mind blown, and you can find still a clip from a debate in the primary in 1980 with George Bush in which they are arguing who is more liberal on immigration. It's a world that doesn't exist anymore, right? It's a different universe. And certainly, you know, when I was working for Bush, people don't really know this because it didn't really matter. But the actual first commercial that we ever aired in the Bush primary campaign or presidential campaign was running from the nomination in 1999 was in Iowa on Hispanic cable television because we thought that it was important to send a signal that this campaign was going to be different and there was going to be an extraordinary effort to attract Hispanic voters. Now, there's not many Hispanic voters who participate in the Iowa primary, Iowa caucus <laughs> on the Republican or side. any. Probably not in the Democrat. But we just thought it was an imp- it meant something to us. 
I mean, I can remember going to Iowa and, and doing this. We had a little press conference thing. I mainly remember because I was caught in a snowstorm with Mark Melman and he kept talking on his cell phone <laughs> and someone in the backseat reached and grabbed it and threw it out the window, at which point, <laughs> at which point Mark didn't really miss a beat and just pulled out another phone and kept talking. Wait, he had a second cell phone? He had a second cell phone. It was a great moment, I have to say. Yeah, amazing. But that was how important we thought that it was. We failed, certainly with African-American voters. We acknowledged it was a failure. And I think that's not unimportant. You know, I remember that same Ken Ken Melman went before the uh, NAACP in 2005 and apologized for the Southern strategy. That's the difference now of what has happened in this moment is, you know, we've had plenty of hate movements in America. We've had candidates of hate. You know, George Wallace got, unlike Ross Perot, when he ran as an independent, he actually got one electoral college votes. But they haven't been endorsed by a major party. You know, Father Coughlin never won the Republican nomination. Now that's happened. And it's a legitimization of it. You know, when Chris Christie goes out, as he's done the last day or so, and attacked Nikki Haley for being silent on this, what he's really doing, Nikki Haley is is really a, a sort of stand-in for the party writ large. because The party is silent on it. And, you know, to, to me, it goes back to that moment in 2015, almost exactly to this day, I think it was December 15th, where Trump came out for a Muslim ban, which is a religious test. I mean, what is a religious test? I mean, if I show up at, at JFK and say, well, you know, I was a Muslim, but now I'm a Quaker, what are they going to do? Ask me like trivia questions about William Penn? I mean, what? <laughs> so it's, a, it's a religious test. And once the party accepts that, as they did, it truly is a straight line to where we are now. So that blood and soil rhetoric, is that just, you know, he knows that he's never going to win the middle, but he's got to get like, you know, people who don't vote out there to vote. And this is the way he thinks he's going to do it. Or is there something I'm missing here? You know, it's, it's a fascinating question because, you know, in the Romney campaign in 2012, you could look at polls and see that there was a percentage of low frequency white voters who couldn't have cared less about what we were talking about. A smaller, smarter government or Russia or the capital gains tax. I mean, they could have cared, they cared more about like who was finishing first in like, you know, an Indian polo league. But you could see that if, if you went out there and waved the bloody shirt on immigration or race or any of those uh, sort of grievance issues related to race, that this would appeal to him. Now, I think people have a much better sense of who Mitt Romney is now. And, you know, you know, if you'd gone to Mitt Romney's office and suggested that, you know, you would have walked out without a job. But I would have bet you at the time that whatever you gained at those low frequency voters, you would have lost a greater number of college educated voters, which is exactly the question you're asking here, which was happening in 16 right up until the Comey letter. Once the Comey letter came out, he won just enough of those. And then in 20, those same voters, which are the voters that the Lincoln Project was focused on and is focused on, these grown soft Republicans, some moderate Democrats, they went back to Biden, which makes sense. Usually the, the last to join a campaign are the first to leave, which makes sense. You have the most doubts. You can be the most easily persuaded to leave. And that's going to be a key factor. Is Biden uh, going to be able to hold these voters? I don't know why we don't talk about this enough, but you know, you have to ask yourself, 
how many Biden 20 voters are there who are likely to be Trump 24 voters? I don't think there's many. No, I don't think so either. I think the question is more like, is it going to suppress the turnout? Um, and Biden, that we don't know yet. We don't. I worked in campaigns and people would ask me, are you worried about, I would just stop them there and say, yes. <laughs> <laughs> whatever yes, you're Yes, worried say. about anything, uh, everything, worried, all the, the weather, The weather, you know, the turnout, right, whatever. Exactly. Yes, I am worried about it. But I find it's extraordinary statistic. In 20, Biden's best group, by age, was under 25 voters. He won them by 11 points. There are a lot more of those voters entering the marketplace than there were before. And there's a lot more of older voters leaving the marketplace, which are more Trump voters. They're, they're typically more Republican voters. I mean, in a lot of ways, Trump performed as a normal Republican candidate. The only economic group that he won in 20 was those who make over $100,000 a year. That's right, a very right. Republican number. And I think that there has been a conspiracy of silence with the donor class that would want a Republican elected. They don't like Trump. I think they don't like Trump more for reasons of class and his his crudeness. You know, they really don't want a president that muses in public about having sex with his daughter. But if that's what it takes to get, you know, other things that they want, okay, fine, whatever. I'm not going to invite him to the House. One thing this primary has given us is a market test. I mean, you have Chris Christie out there offering a very different view of the party with direct criticism of Trump. And that's why I think it's important that Christie stay in. I see all this Christie should get out. I think it's really important to stay in because at the end of the day, you need to be able to look at this and say, these voters had an alternative. How many took it? And I worked for Chris Christie in both his races. I loved the guy. I was disappointed, to say the least, that he endorsed Trump. But, you know, he's not going to be the Republican nominee. I no. expect he'll get, at the end of the day, close to what Bill Well got, former governor of Massachusetts, when he primaried Trump in 20, which people have even forgotten happened. And he ended up with like 12 percent. So there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen with the Biden administration, with Biden's reelect, because there's a lot riding on it, right? A lot. Like, this could be the do you want to have elections anymore election. Yes. Which is seems very likely. You have run a lot of campaigns. Many have won. Some have lost. What do you think Joe Biden needs to be doing? I am a great admirer of the Biden campaign. I think that what they did in 20 is underappreciated. You know, not to get too far in the weeds, but after Watergate, we went to federal funding of presidential general elections, which meant that each candidate got the exact same amount of money if they voluntarily opted into the system and agreed not to raise or spend more money. And, you know, it was around $80 million. You literally got it after you gave your acceptance speech and walked off the stage. There was someone there from the Treasury Department that had a check. And we would always go like, well, can you wire this? Like, no, we, we, we do chips. We do chips. Which is why we started having conventions later and later. Right. Because you're going to get the same amount of money and you have a more compact amount of time to spend it in. So Barack Obama, 2008, opted out of that system. McCain stayed in it. So you had one candidate in the system. Barack Obama spent about $370 million and the general McCain spent $80 million. Then Romney was the first time both candidates had been out of the federal funding system that allowed them to raise unlimited money, and they both spent over a billion dollars. So it's fair to ask, who was the last incumbent president 
who was not in the federal funding system, which did level the playing field because both candidates had the same amount of money. Carter lost under that system. Bush lost under that system. But when both candidates had unlimited money that they could raise, who was the last incumbent president to lose? And the answer is Herbert Hoover. And he had a bad year. So (laughs) say what you will about Donald Trump. He was an incumbent president with the ability to raise unlimited money in the Biden campaign, became the first campaign to beat somebody like that since Herbert Hoover. Yeah. And I think that's pretty damn impressive. They reinvented the convention with their virtual convention. I want you to come along with me on something I'm obsessed with. You're going to play along with me here. What if polls are all wrong? Well, I think the polls are all wrong in the sense that if you're looking at them as predictive. I mean, I think basically these polls are asking, would you like a different alternative? And who in the world is going to say no to that? I mean, you know, when's the last time they sold cars with, look, nothing's changed since last year. It's just as good. It's always new. We're addicted to new. New's the most powerful word in advertising. I mean, my prediction is Biden's going to win by a larger margin than he did in 20, and it's going to be an easier campaign. Yeah, I think that too. We might both be wrong, but luckily, uh, we will. if we're both wrong, we'll make Jesse pull this episode. Jesse, note this episode so that if we're both wrong, we can pull this. When we're applying for asylum. Right. When we're applying for asylum, I'll bring this with me. I will bring the recording. Thank you, Jesse, for saying that. When we're trying to get into Portugal, we will, Stuart Stevens and I will be like, we were not right. You must understand. Molly Dumbass has a huge audience, and we went out and said this stuff. One of them will feel bad for us. Stuart Stevens, you are the best. I really appreciate you. I hope you'll come back. Thank you. I'm like the crazy uncle at Thanksgiving dinner. Don't don't invite me if you don't want me to come, because I will. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered. No worries, right? Well, not so fast. What about your out-of-pocket costs? That can be a lot of money for you and your family. And if you're like me, you can't help but wonder, was I overbilled? You're not alone. It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? It's a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. HealthLock finds medical bill errors before you pay. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, 
Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of. A degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Congressman Colin Alred represents Texas's 32nd district and is a candidate for the United States Senate in the great state of Texas. He is running against Ted Cruz, who no one likes. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Colin. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. You're running against Ted Cruz for the Senate, great state of Texas. Shit's going down in Texas. (laughs) Yeah. Talk to me about the Kate Cox case. She was 19 weeks pregnant when she filed. She just had all of the things that Republicans claimed would work for an exception in the state of Texas, an abortion exception, except none of those things worked. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's an incredibly tragic story, really. And it's one that, you know, for me is, I guess, personal. You know, my wife and I have a four and a two year old. We have a lot of friends who have young children. We can all imagine a scenario where, you know, a mother of two has a a wanted third pregnancy that has something go terribly wrong. And her doctor says that she needs a medically necessary abortion. She's had to go to the emergency room four times. And she's had to petition her state for the right to get access to care close to home, probably so that she can be near her one and three-year-old. And instead of having an attorney general in a state that actually tries to help her through this crisis, uh, she's forced to flee the state. It's tragic for us as a state because it hammers home that this is what a total ban on abortion looks like, is that it sweeps in stories like this. And the impact for us is going to be have so many ripple effects if we can't do something about it. The good news is we can. At the federal level, we can restore Roe v. Wade through legislation. Now, Texas is not going to change. The, the state government is not going to repeal their or change their abortion law. The Supreme Court made that clear. But we can, at the federal level, restore the same rights that we've had for the last 50 years if we can have a Senate that's willing to do it. I've voted to pass it in the House. When I'm in the Senate, we'll get it done. But you could see a world where a normal senator 
goes in there and tells Ken Paxton to shut the fuck up. Excuse my French. The story with Ken Paxton is his power is completely unchecked at the state level. It is, but also he's you know politically allies with Ted Cruz. They are in this effort together to push these extreme policies and to push our state into this extreme place. Cruz supported him recently in his impeachment hearings when he it should have been removed by the state Senate that I think the state house on a bipartisan basis led by Republicans brought forward a number of incredibly troubling charges. Uh, the state Senate decided basically along, you know, for political reasons to keep him. And now he feels empowered. This is this kind of a cabal of extremist leadership uh, that has put our state in this incredibly warped reality where women in our state have fewer rights, where you have counties and cities today. The Amarillo City Council is, is sitting down to decide whether or not to ban travel through Amarillo if it's for access to an abortion. You have counties that have already banned that and saying that, you know, you can't travel through our county if you're going to try and use it for access to an abortion. So when you combine this total ban with these laws, you, you start to turn Texas women into prisoners in their own state. Uh, and I can tell you this, Molly, uh, Tex that's not who Texans are. We are we want to be left alone. <laughs> we have a long history of that, of being kind of a leave me alone state. Uh, let me chase, you know, my version of the American dream and get out of my way. But this extreme situation that we're in is the result of decades of folks like Ted Cruz who've been pushing for this. And that's why we have to beat him in the next election. What do you say about people who, you know, are like he doesn't have a shot? Well, it's just not true. Yeah, I understand that, you know, sort of the skepticism, I guess you could say. Number one. As a state, uh, we are incredibly diverse, dynamic. We've been growing so rapidly. Uh, we are in a place where we're ready for to get rid of some of these extreme politicians like Ted Cruz. Uh, but also just our recent elections have shown uh, that we're right basically in the same position as Arizona and Georgia were before they got breakthroughs. Now, we got to make it happen. And our challenge in Texas has been that we had over 9 million Texans who didn't vote in the last election. You know, as a voting rights lawyer before I came to Congress, that's something that's always been near and dear to my heart. It is difficult to vote in our state, but that's not the only reason uh, that the number is where it is. It's also that too many folks have decided that you know, there's nothing that can change in their lives. We're not a part, going to be a part of make our voice heard in this democracy. Uh, and we have to make sure in this election that we empower those folks to make sure that they understand that I'll be a senator for them too. And for our state, we really are at a tipping point. Uh, if we can continue down this extreme path, I'm already hearing from business leaders, from university leaders uh, who are concerned that it's harder for us as a state to recruit and retain top talent uh, when folks feel like they're going to have fewer rights or when they feel like if they have a complication in their pregnancy that the Texas Supreme Court is going to tell them that there's nothing they can do. You also are losing doctors. Will you talk about that a little bit? Well, this is a real problem for us. Uh, we already have serious issues around maternal mortality and maternal health. Uh, we have huge health deserts in parts of our say, with a, a number of rural hospitals that have been closing in recent years because of our extremely high uninsured rate. We have the highest uninsured rate in the country. We are already seeing uh, that this is going to have an impact on particularly OBGYNs who may choose to practice somewhere else or to not bring their practice to Texas or to not study medicine in Texas. And the long-term impacts of, for this could be incredibly impactful. And we have to make sure that we go back to the standard we've had for the last 50 years because my wife and I have had two babies uh, in Texas in the last five years. Our OB who delivered in both of our boys, you know, she's a friend and feels like part of the family in some ways. You know, these are deeply personal decisions that doctors need to be making. 
in consultation with their the women who are actually going to be doing this. And, you know, I can't imagine if at one of our appointments, if the doctor had come in and said, you know, there's a problem with the, with the baby or there's a problem with the pregnancy, but there's nothing I can do to help you. You're going to have to go somewhere else and maybe find someone else to care for you. That would have been so difficult to deal with when you're already dealing with so many other things, going through a pregnancy, especially if you're already a parent. And it's just heartbreaking. And this is what this is what the reality is that we're facing now in Texas, is that there are lots of physicians who are looking at our state who are here now or who uh, maybe are training in our excellent medical schools like at UT Southwestern in my area. Or Baylor, right? Or Baylor, who are deciding whether or not this is where they want to be, whether or not they want to have a you know, potential liability of a felony, prison time, civil penalties, if they do what they think is necessary. Texas is such a big state. It's not so easy just to leave. I mean, New Mexico has abortion. But also there is some question about whether or not, I mean, SBA does have a bounty system in it, right? Well, we have a total abortion ban that was a trigger ban that went in place. And then the bounty that you're referring to is civil penalties that basically any person can bring litigation against anyone who aids and abets or is a part of someone getting access to an abortion. And it's created effectively a bounty on Texas women. And when you combine that with the criminal penalties that have been put in place, that the attorney general was threatening the hospitals involved in Kate Cox's situation with, then you create an overlapping system of both criminal and civil penalties that would basically led us to have abortion banned in, in all cases, almost. No exceptions for rape or incest. The extremely narrow exception of the life of the mother, which the Texas Supreme Court just said apparently didn't apply to Kate, even though she had to go to the emergency room four times, and her doctor said this was medically necessary for her to do. And it's created an atmosphere of fear. It's created an atmosphere uh, in which Texas women are honestly targets in our state, uh, in which activists may try and you know find someone to make an example of. And it's deeply un. American. It is such government overreach. It's it's almost like blows your mind to even think about that it's reality that in the state of Texas right now, you have politicians and lawyers, not doctors, determining what's the best pathway forward for women's health. And their fellow Texans can use the civil law to basically you know, target them if they do somehow get access to the care that they need with huge fines. And so you turn the state into a state of informants, potentially. And we've seen that before in history in other countries, but never really in our country. But we have to have a response to it. And the only response that we can have that I can see is that at the federal level, because as I said, our state is not going to change this law. We have to restore Roe v. Wade through legislation. We've passed it in the House and in my time in the House. We couldn't get it through the Senate. Uh, when I beat Ted Cruz and I'm in the United States Senate, we will restore Roe and go back to the standard that we've had for the last 50 years. And that will supersede what's going on in Texas. Here you are in Texas. You have a, uh, a governor who has such a complicated relationship with the law, right? And then he gets away with it. Do you think he's emboldened from this? Well, I think that they are emboldened at the moment, but I also think that they've overreached dramatically and that they have sown the seeds of their own downfall. This is not who Texas is. I'm a fourth generation Texan. I was born and raised in Dallas by a single mother. I went to Baylor. I was captain of the football team there. My family's from Brownsville. My, my mom and my aunt and uncle went to school at, at UT, University of Texas in Austin. I think I know who we are, and this is not who we are. We're not a state where we believe that 
you should have your neighbors telling you what you can and can't do with your body or that politicians know better than your doctor does. And I think we're going to respond to this, and, but we have to do it as a state. And we need anyone out there who thinks that this is not who we are as Americans as well to get involved. And I ask you to go to ColinAllRed.com and help us make sure that we can beat Ted Cruz. He is the most vulnerable Republican senator in the country. We can and should beat him here. And we will. You guys registering voters. I mean, I feel like that's such a crucial part of this. Yeah, you know, I think that this is an ongoing project for us in Texas, and it's part of our campaign. It's part of a number of efforts to register voters, yes. But we have a lot of voters who are registered who aren't turning out. We have to help them overcome those kind of initial hurdles. And I was in my voting rights practice in Texas. I would often come across people who wanted to vote, but who just it just seemed kind of daunting. Because there's so many overlapping laws that make it seem like if you do something wrong, that you might get caught up in the criminal justice system and you're already trying to avoid that because you have so many other things going on in your life. Uh, and so you decide just, you know what, I'm just not going to vote. Like, honestly, I just I don't want to deal with the whole problem. It's that voter who we can help and who our volunteers can help and who, uh, honestly, the resources that our campaign is, is going to you know, pull together can help. Uh, because it's that voter who wants to be involved in 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 their democracy, but just needs a little bit of help that we can we can get out in this election. And it's already a close election. Our margin is going to come from folks who you know, are Republicans, uh, but who say, you know, I'm a Republican, but I'm not that kind of Republican. And this this is not who I am. I certainly was elected by folks like that in Dallas. I've flipped a seat that had been held for 22 years by a Republican congressman who was thought to be unbeatable. A lot of George W. Bush voters voted for me, uh, but also for those folks who, uh, as I said, who just need a little bit of help to overcome what seems like a a daunting system that's not set up for them. And that's our project in Texas, not only in this election, but over the coming decades. Uh, but we can do it here. And when we have this breakthrough, I think it'll lead to many others. Such an important point. Is there a chance to get abortion on the ballot here? I mean, you know, when you're going from district to district, what are you seeing? I mean, what are Texans telling you? Number one, unfortunately, we can't have a, a ballot initiative directly in Texas. So only the legislature can do that. And that's not going to be yeah, good luck yeah, in this election. <laughs> Yeah. But, you know, as I said, that's why it's so important that we win here in this Senate race, because I do believe that we'll have pro-choice majority. And what I mean by that is I include folks like Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski who say that, you know, they're pro-choice. Well, you know, let's give them some more votes in the Senate for to restore the, you know, the, the system that we had for the last half century. And at the federal level, we can end this kind of balkanization of rights that's going on in our country right now, where in some states you have many fewer rights, especially if you're a woman, than you do in others based on whatever uh, the legislature in that state says. That's what we have to do, I think, is to go back to the center that we had before the Supreme Court you know, overturned Roe and set off this cycle of, you know, really cruelty in states like Texas. Uh, and so th that's the message we have to make sure folks understand that this is the direct way to do this, that this is the direct way for us to restore reproductive rights in Texas and across the country, is for us to have a majority of folks in the Congress who will vote to really just go back to what is, was basically the American status quo for the last half century and to end this kind of competition that some of these states are having to see who can be the most cruel, who can go the farthest. And that'll help Texans. It'll help Americans all across the country who are in states that are pursuing this. Such a good point. Do you think that voters are tired of Republicans fighting with each other? Because we're seeing so much of that in the Texas State House, but also with Trump trying to primary Chip Roy. Yeah, I mean, I think this has become an ongoing, this theme in Texas, uh, you know, kind of the the saga of Republicans fighting each other. 
in many ways, it kind of came to a head with uh, the impeachment of the attorney general who was impeached on completely defensible and, you know, I think incredibly solid grounds of impeachments that were led by Republicans you know, about a Republican attorney general, about his abuse of power, about his abuse of uh, the public trust. And because of you know, political reasons, the state Senate you know, decided not to, to do the right thing. And I think Texans are tired of being embarrassed. I think they're tired of being embarrassed by uh, these extreme politicians who are making us look like a state that is as extreme as they are at the national level. And we're not. But also, you know, this is a, a state of 30 million people with four of the largest metro areas and the fastest growing metro areas in the country in Dallas-Fort Worth, Houston Metro, San Antonio, and Austin. One of the fastest growing, biggest cities in the country, drawing in the biggest companies in the world. And that you know, trying to recruit and bring in the top talent from around the world to to stay here and to help us grow our economy here. And this is a direct threat to all of that. When you are one of those companies, whether you're, if you're Match.com, which is headquartered in Dallas and was in my district, and you're trying to bring in the top you know, programmers and coders from around the world so that you can continue to lead the way in like, you know, basically the online, uh, you know, space, it's harder to do that when you have a law like this in place. And so this has so many other ripple effects from, you know, yes, Kate Cox and her family, also to the OBGs at uh, Baylor, where, where my wife and I delivered our two boys out to, you know, the biggest companies, you know, in our country, basically, that are now saying, well, is Texas the right place for us to be? How are we going to continue to have the workforce and the talent that we need to our university system, which is one of the best in the country? The UT system is a crown jewel here in our state. And a lot of professors are looking to leave. We've, we've had articles written about how you know, anonymous surveys have shown that many of them are, are considering leaving. You know, this has so many ripple effects. So uh, we have to have a response as a state of who we actually are. And our problem is that our electorate hasn't always been what our state is. And that's what we have to try to address. Thank you so much, Colin. I hope you'll come back. Yeah, thank you, Molly. Thanks for covering it. For folks out there, please go to colinallred.com and get involved with us. Congressman Jim Hines represents Connecticut's 4th Congressional District. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Congressman Jim Hines. Thanks for having me. So you guys are out. The Senate is in. There is supposedly a border security Ukraine-Taiwan-Israel aid package being negotiated in the Senate, but it's probably not being. I mean, is this disarray? Yeah, I mean, it's worth unpacking all of that stuff, right? Israel aid would get done very easily as a standalone. I mean, the only reason it got hiccuped in the House was because the Speaker, being too cute by half, decided that he would pair the $15 billion aid package to Israel with that money coming from President Biden's initiative to, you know, fund the IRS to go after tax cheats. So the Israel piece would sail. On the other extreme, half the Republicans in the House don't want to continue to assist Ukraine. So they have a whole bunch of pretextual objections and their total pretext, which is, oh, we want to audit the stuff. We want to know what the strategy is. That's all baloney. They're kowtowing to Donald Trump. At least most of them are. Um, and therefore, they've paired it, you know, the possibility of Ukraine aid with the single hardest thing that the Congress could try to do, which is immigration policy. I know whereof I speak, right? Because we haven't passed an immigration bill in decades. Yeah, you are in Congress. You have been in the House for a long time. I think of you as sort of someone who knows what's going on. You have this speaker. He 
is was, you know, number four or five in leadership. He got this job after nine years in the house. Like he had a lot of goodwill for about a week. How do you solve a problem like the Freedom Caucus? I think I know the answer to that question. The problem is it's never been tried, right? So Boehner goes down, Paul Ryan goes down, Kevin McCarthy goes down, and now Johnson is facing exactly the same pressures, which is the Freedom Caucus want everything done their way and they want the outcomes their way. We saw this last week. And when they don't get that, it's the classic my way or the highway. So I think I know the answer to your question, and I'm super intrigued that Kevin McCarthy never sort of went down this path. And and the reason I think I know what the answer to the question is, because look at the uh, National Defense Authorization Act that we passed last week, massive bill funding the Pentagon and lots of other stuff. And look at the budget deals that got done, the continuing resolutions, they all get done with more Democratic votes than with Republican votes in a Republican majority Congress. And so The answer to your question, Molly, is that you build a structure that isolates the Freedom Caucus. You know, you do a deal with Hakeem Jeffries and just do it up front instead of waiting for the vote to come up. And you say, look, I need 40 or 50 of your guys to protect me from a motion to vacate, which is really easy to do. And we're going to negotiate these bills so that the inevitable outcome is sort of dealt with up front, which is lots of Democrats will help me isolate the Freedom Caucus. And what that results in, Molly, I think is a functional bipartisan Congress in which the speaker lasts to the end of the Congress, not beyond, (laughs) but to the end of the Congress. (laughs) Yeah, the defense bill was really interesting. I mean, were you guys able to get the uh, transit bill passed? No. So does that run out on December 31st? Yeah, the Senate's working away at it now, and I, I forget the exact sequence. Won't that have to come up to the House, though? I think that's right. Yeah, I mean, we did pass the bills. I Honestly, I've sort of forgotten the sequence here. We did pass a bill, uh, gosh, months ago now, and I think the Senate's worked out. So I think we'll be okay there. Look, they're the issue, FAA, right? The Freedom Caucus, you know, they don't weigh in. Well, they would if they could. I mean, don't you think the fundamental problem here with the Freedom Caucus is that they want desperately to end the federal government? And so any kind of legislation is infuriating to them. Exactly. They have a vision of the federal government that is sort of a, 1840 vision, you know, guard the borders, collect some customs fees, and that's it. And it's part of the Republican Party problem writ large. In as much as today's Republican Party has an ideology, and it and it doesn't really, right? It's whatever Trump wants. We know that because in the last, you know, Republican convention to nominate Trump, they said, you know, whatever he wants, we're not doing a platform. Um, the problem that they face is in as much as American Republicans have an ideology, it's deeply unpopular, right? I mean, case in point, they spent 50 years trying to reverse Roe v. Wade because they had to put it back in the, the question of abortion, what they thought was this massively controversial question. We need to put it back in the hands of the people. Well, look at what happens when you put it back in the hands of the people. Ohio and Kansas, two of the reddest states on the planet, Past constitutional amendments, you know, allowing for abortion. And and I don't even need to get into the policy of, you know, cutting the taxes of the enormously wealthy. You know, they they want deeply, deeply unpopular things, which is why more and more they're getting away from a democracy that listens to the voices of people in favor of deeply non-majoritarian, not to say undemocratic things like the United States Senate, like the Supreme Court 
you know, like legislatures overriding, you know, the votes of the people, et cetera. Right. There's a uh, headline today in Politico about how what they're doing now is trying to keep abortion off the ballot because they know that that is the thing that galvanizes voters, just like Karl Rove did with gay marriage in 2003. This is sort of a they know what they're into is unpopular. So I'm curious now we're you're in the House. You have a vibes based impeachment going. Let's talk about this vibes based impeachment. There's no incident, right? The idea is there's sort of a vague feeling that they are mad about Hunter Biden's car loan. What is happening with impeachment? Well, it's one more example of a syndrome. And I mentioned this before, which is Donald Trump controlling the puppet strings. Donald Trump said there will be an impeachment. So lo and behold, there will be an impeachment. Donald Trump said, cut Ukraine off. And so lo and behold, they're doing everything they can to cut Ukraine off. And I I see this dynamic every day, Molly, and it's fascinating. It takes me back to a line from the West Wing, I think it was, where some French revolutionary says to another French revolutionary, we must go see where the people are going so that we may lead them. And Republicans in Congress today are hostage to their MAGA base because Donald Trump goes on OAN or Fox News and says Ukraine is a corrupt country full of Nazis. Don't fund them. And reasonable and unreasonable Republicans go back to their districts and face people who say with, you know, the utter fantasies of Donald Trump. And instead of being leaders, instead of saying what John McCain said when that woman in the debate said Barack Obama is a Muslim. And John McCain said, no, man, he's not, you know, he's not. He's a good man. Not one Republican will do that in the face of Donald Trump uh, today. And so what happens is they sort of urge it along. They urge along the lies. Like maybe that 2020 election was subject to all sorts of irregularities. And then they come back to D.C. and have the gall to say, my constituents have concerns. That should be the bumper sticker motto of House Republicans. <laughs> my constituents have concerns. Be- of course they do, because you don't tell them that they're, you know, that they are in a fever dream fantasy about the 2020 election. You know, you name it. Right. So there are 18 Republicans who are in Biden districts, many from New York, because New York Democratic Party absolutely shit the bed during the 2022 election cycle and fucked up and lost five seats. And that happened in California, too. So there are these 16 Republicans who really are not in safe seats. They have all had to vote to impeach Biden to start an impeachment inquiry on vibes. Do you think that this wins Democrats back the House? Or do you think that we're just so in the post-truth world that nobody ever knows? You hit the dynamic on the head there. You know, those 18 Republicans in Biden districts who have been forced to go along with the Freedom Caucus, they're in a very tenuous position. And again, they had this whole song and dance about how, oh, well, this is just an impeachment inquiry. This just gives us the powers to get the subpoenas that we need to get at the facts. And you're absolutely right. Never happened before. Remember, when we when Donald Trump first got impeached before the impeachment inquiry began, we had the transcript of a phone call in which Donald Trump tells the president Zelensky, give me dirt on Biden or I will not send you aid. I mean, right out of a mafia movie. Right. We had that. We had that. And of course, you know, unless you are a high priest in the cult of 
Donald Trump, you know what many Republican House members and even more senators are saying, which is you've uncovered no evidence yet. Right. When you think about the idea of an impeachment, you had times where was the offense impeachable? Impeachable was the question, right? Like with Clinton, is lying about sex an impeachable offense, right? And the and the answer was, if you're Newt Gingrich, yes. Except when it's actually Newt Gingrich, in which case it's no. <laughs> but he was never president. But this is a case in which there is no offense, right? So it's a question of can you impeach someone just because the former president told you to? Exactly. And again, that's the underlying dynamic. And we all get confused. 60 court cases turned back when the Trump people and Giuliani tried to overturn the election in court, you know, without exception. Courts laughed them out of court. Zero evidence for Joe Biden, you know, having in any corrupt way been involved with Hunter Biden. But those facts don't matter. It's liturgical, right? It's liturgical in MAGA that Biden is the head of a massive crime family that makes the Sopranos look like a priesthood. Whatever Donald Trump says, and you and I both know that 95% of what Donald Trump says is made up out of whole cloth, but that becomes liturgical truth. And so most Republicans in the House, because that MAGA base, though it is percentage-wise small, is how you lose a primary they need to bow and kowtow and shuffle and, oh, well, my constituents have concerns, et cetera. Because I listen to the C-SPAN podcast, I have become one of the more boring people on this earth. But I did hear Mike Johnson saying when he was trying to convince other Republicans to vote for this insanity, that it was their constitutional duty to open this impeachment inquiry. Did you hear this? And what do you think about this idea of sort of using the Constitution, of confusing other Republicans about what the Constitution says as a possible play for Mike Johnson? It's all, you know, rationalization, right? I mean, 240 years of history, we've never had an impeachment inquiry, you know, opened with absolutely no evidence. And, and, and by the way, I mean, shoot, it was all of, what, five years ago that Nancy Pelosi, then Speaker of the House, was under immense pressure to start an impeachment inquiry for Donald Trump on Russia. Remember that? Right. And she really didn't want to do it. I had plenty of constituents who were lighting me up and saying, you know, Russia, Russia, Russia. And of course, the Mueller investigation is going on. There's a congressional event. And Nancy Pelosi said, hell no, hell no. Because of Clinton, right? Because of the Clinton impeachment and how badly it did for Republicans or another reason? No, I think Nancy Pelosi realized that, you know, that weaponizing impeachment, you know, that is to say starting one with no evidence and, and Mueller's out there gathering evidence was a bad place to go. It was only when the, quote, perfect phone call of, of incredible extortion <laughs> came out that Pelosi pulled the trigger. <laughs> Yeah, I remember watching that because it was five years ago, though. It feels like 50 thinking to myself, like she has so much anxiety about starting this impeachment. One of the things that Nancy Pelosi was famous for was trying to protect her vulnerable Democrats, right? The people like those 16 Republicans who are, you know. Exactly. I watched her do it again and again and again. You know, Nancy Pelosi really understood how you built and expanded a majority for the Republican. Republicans have been throwing their 18 most vulnerable members under the bus again and again and again. 
So I'm wondering, as we're in this, do you think that the George Santos, I was really surprised that Republicans kicked George Santos out of the House. At the last minute, leadership decided to vote to keep him. That was sort of incredible. What do you think about that? And were you surprised that they ultimately did it and that the leadership then seized defeat from the jaws of victory? Because I feel like at the last minute, they were like, oh, my God, math. Yeah, I think that's what happened. And by the way, the first time before the ethics report came out, I voted against expelling George Santos because though I'd read the press and though it was pretty clear this was a slimy guy, there had been no process whatsoever, no reports, no investigation. And then, of course, the famous 56 page report from the ethics committee comes out replete with spending of campaign funds on OnlyFans and Botox and lie after lie after lie. By the way, written by a Republican chairman. And stealing money from Max Miller's mom. (laughs) And nowhere, nowhere, nowhere does it say that a member must be convicted of a crime. We're an Article One authority. We decide. And that was obviously enough process. But you, you hit the nail on the head. Mike Johnson, as some of his more operationally inclined people were like, oh, my gosh, our majority is going down to three and down to two. You know, so. So, yeah, they uh they tried to keep them. Incredible. So so what do you think now? We got the Swazi election. Santos's seat is now going into a special. That's New York 11. Then we're going to go that. So that could mean their majority would be down by another one, right? Yeah. Frankly, it doesn't matter if it's a three seat majority or a four seat or a seven seat majority. I mean, you know, think of who populates the margin there, right? Bobart. Bob Good, Paul Gosar, you know, I mean, these are, this is the Star Wars cantina of the far right. And so it doesn't really matter who, you know, whether, now, by the way, dare I say, if somehow the majority, somebody does a surprise retirement, it gets down to one person. Now you start thinking about, you know, Arlen Specter, who changed parties and flipped control of the Senate or Jim Jeffords back in the day. Right. I mean, I'm not even going to tease that because I don't think it's very likely. But, yeah, when you're down to a one person majority, it's no more manageable for them than a 10 person majority. But it, it gets intriguing. It does get intriguing. And I mean, there is some West Wing fanfic about a Republican going over to the other side, though it seems very unlikely in this world of hyperpartisanship. Thank you so much, Jim. I hope you'll come back. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jung Fast, I hear you're really excited about polls because I know you love polls so much. 1,000 people answering their fucking phones does not necessarily tell you how the rest of the country feels. But even more annoying than that, we have these slate of new New York Times polls. They come out. There was one that showed Trump ahead in all the swing districts. All right. Again, based on that was 2,300 people talked to on the phone. This poll actually showed Biden up 47 to 45 would look likely voters and they buried that headline. So I'm going to say this real slow. Polls are not real. They are called pseudo events because they are like press conferences, things created by campaigns and politicians and pundits to give something to talk to. And they give you a false sense of knowing what's happening. Certainly people are mad at Biden. Certainly the economy is bad. Certainly the vibes are bad, but I'm not going to 
start freaking out about these insane polls that are posted in such a way. So, yes, guess why this is bad for Biden? Throw out all the polls. Make sure to vote. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.